According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, one of the most important passages in all the scriptures. We're on the verge of getting to it. We've got to tie together just a couple of loose ends, and then we'll deal with the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 8. So we're tying together the last elements here of uh, 12 through 21, the uh, endowment that comes through wisdom. Uh, counsel is mine and sound wisdom, it says in verse 14. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign. And we have to kind of unwrap that a little bit because I can point to an awful lot of kings that are not reigning by the wisdom of God. They're reigning by the wisdom of the world. They're reigning by human wisdom. They're reigning by uh, anything but Scripture. Okay? So how do we understand this verse? Is it a lie? Is it wrong? Or is it true in a sense that we need to appreciate for what is being uh, communicated here? And rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me. And those who diligently seek me will find me. So we're talking about an intimacy, a rapport love, one that is returned, one that is the basis of fellowship. This is not the unconditional sacrificial love of God so loved the world. Uh, This is not loving your enemies. This is not agape in any respect. This is phileo. This is the rapport love with a a believer that is uh, occupied with the Word of God. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. So we have fruit, we have yield, and then in verse 21 we have endowment. I endow those who love me with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. And so we need to view this passage both in a temporal basis here in time, but ultimately we need to view it on an eternal basis as far as the rewards of those who are blessed by God for all eternity, that a part of the rewards is the wealth and the ruling that they will uh, exercise. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. So we'll tie that those loose ends together, and then we'll get ready for verse 22 with the begetting of Jesus Christ in his humanity. The Lord uh, possessed me, canod me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. And that's what we're, I'm really eager to get to. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to approach the scriptures and uh, in uh, diligence to uh, be diligent to present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray that we would be diligent this morning. I pray that we would be noble-minded, that we would search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Thank you, Father, for the blessing we do have to humble ourselves before you and the blessing, Father, that you have to manifest your faithfulness yet again. Uh, this will be an occasion where your faithfulness will be on display. Your, your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And I thank you for that, Father, in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
All right, so this is main point two, as we've studied it. We had uh, personified wisdom in main point one, the contrast to the uh, cunning woman of chapter seven, and the harlot that we uh, took time to deal with there, and the contrast with wisdom in this chapter are like night and day, polar opposites in, uh, in so many different ways. Point two, we talk about wisdom speaks in the first person, I, wisdom. And uh, the first person really is going to carry through um, the rest of this chapter because when we, when we get to the beginning of Jesus Christ, it is still in the first person. The Lord possessed me, and it's still wisdom that's speaking. All right? I was established. I was brought forth. I was there. And it's all in the first person there when we get to that beginning portion of, uh, of this chapter. Well, even prior to that, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. And so we have a first person message here. Wisdom is speaking in the first person as to her associations and disassociations. Also making use of a love-hate dichotomy. Now in this we are at point D. Nope. There it is. Temporal intimacy with the word results in eternal reward. And I'm taking this passage primarily as an eternal application. Although we started with the temporal, and we did that last week, we started with the temporal, and I'll review that briefly today. But, uh, but mostly we want to understand this text on an eternal basis. Uh, wisdom does these things for you, obviously, on an experiential basis, temporally, here and now. Believers who walk in wisdom have benefit in time, but they also benefit in eternity. And that's what's spoken of when we're talking about these kind of uh, uh, riches, the kind of wealth, all right? Um, and I hope we're clear on that. Because uh, otherwise, if, if all we're doing is just approaching the Word of God for what do I get out of it, then how am I any different than a prosperity the- uh, theology kind of guy or whatever? Am I, am I serving the Lord so I can... Uh, be wealthy and healthy and, and for, the, the, for the plunder and loot that I get here in time? You know? I mean, there may be special blessings in time. Great. If there are, there are. But if they're not, they're not. And, and my, my walk is not wrong if, if I'm on the uh, lower end of that prosperity spectrum. See? So, I think when, when it comes to time and the outworking of our Christian faith, then we're to seek wisdom above treasure above gold above silver uh it's obviously preferable because we should be seeking the wisdom of god for the eternal benefit and that's what we have here so riches and honor are with me enduring wealth and righteousness um it it may at the surface appear to be uh temporal in its application but i believe it's eternal in its application and and the words in the in the passage i think clue us into that uh, the fact that we're talking about fruit, that's a product that you have to wait for that will finally bear forth in its season. Or uh, that we're talking about enduring wealth. Well, the wealth of this earth doesn't endure, but the wealth of, of our reward does endure. What The wealth that we receive in the resurrection does endure, and it's the enduring wealth that we uh, obtain through this kind of wisdom. Uh, my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. My yield is better than choice of silver. Again, we're talking about a yield, all right? That's a term that does not apply to the instantaneous gratification of the, of the here and now. We're talking about the um, maturing of your investment portfolio. 
We're talking about when is it that you're able to cash out these investments. And when it comes to everything that we're laying up in heaven, uh, that happens when we get there. All right. Another expression, I think, in this text is it's with me. It is with me. All right. And so, uh, again, verse 18, riches and honor are with me. And I think uh, the carnal approach to, to booty and plunder and loot and all the, you know, the, the prosperity stuff is that, well, you stay where you are, but just shower the blessings down here upon me <laughs> so I can spend all my money and party and have fun and do whatever. All right? No, the riches and honor are with him. I need to be heavenly minded. I need to be focused on him. I'm seated at his right hand. I need to have this kind of a perspective. So uh, what are the other terms that we're looking at here? Uh, Endowment and to fill the treasuries in verse 21. When does that happen? Does that happen here and now? Or does that happen when uh, it's pronounced well done, good and faithful servant? Does that happen when we have the treasures then bestowed? You realize that... uh, that God is free to bestow additional wealth upon those that have earned a return on their labors. And we're going to see those scriptures here today. So now, looking at it in two ways, looking at it in temporal terms and looking at it in eternal terms. This is what we want to understand. And temporally too, we want to make sure that we make the right temporal application, not the wrong temporal application. I believe if you are going to find a temporal application in this text, then it's the, one, it's the point that we made under subpoint one. That by me king's reign means under the permissive will of Jesus Christ and his sovereign control of human history. All right? I don't believe the text says every king on earth uses divine viewpoint for their uh, governing principles. <laughs> okay? That just doesn't, cor- it doesn't correlate with any other text of scripture. The Bible describes plenty of kings that don't reign by the wisdom of God. Okay, in terms of divine viewpoint, norms and standards, uh, the uh, text of, of the Hebrew and Greek canon of Scripture, there's plenty of kings that don't do that. Okay? Just pick your favorite five wicked kings of the Bible. You know, Pharaoh in Egypt. Was Pharaoh ruling Egypt based upon divine viewpoint, the wisdom from above? Not at all. So um, what is this passage really saying then when we consider by me kings reign? Well, The wisdom of God is Jesus Christ, and the wisdom of God has sovereignty over human history. And so according to Daniel 2.21, Daniel 4.25, Daniel 5, Acts 17.26, Romans 13.1, all right? And uh, I'm not going to reread all of those because that was what we did last week, but Acts 17.26, if you haven't grabbed this yet, grab it, memorize it, understand it, God is in charge. God is in charge. In fact, I've kind of been meditating on this verse a lot since uh, Scalia died and other events have taken place. And if I didn't have uh, a divine viewpoint or faith in in Jesus Christ controlling history, I might be a little concerned right now with uh, with the, uh, you know, the the communists that might replace Scalia on the Supreme Court. And uh, what happens to our nation when it tips 5-4? The last couple times, I mean, you want to talk about the Warren Court, you want to talk about some of the Burger Court, you want to talk about some of the, the horrible eras of our history that took our nation in some ugly places. We can discuss those, but I'm not here to discuss politics. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is ever since Saturday, Acts 17, 26 has been a comfort, okay? That Jesus Christ, God himself, okay, 
made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God is in charge. And he is in charge of when this nation rises and when this nation falls. And uh, the extent of their uh, boundaries of their habitation, uh, when uh, he wants to enlarge our borders or when he wants to diminish our borders, God's in charge. When he wants to increase the reach and, uh, of our uh, the ability that our nation has to project power around the world, he can expand the reach that our nation has to expand power across the world, or he can diminish it. He can diminish it. And he's free to do so. But this is God and his sovereignty that does so. It's not man. You'll also notice the purpose clause for this, that, in verse 27, they would seek God. And the primary motivation that God employs in, in his decision-making process is the availability of the gospel, of the word of God to be taught in a, a particular community. That perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You know, if, uh, if totalitarian tyranny will wake people up and cause unbelievers to seek for God, ooh, then maybe we don't need to be in capitalistic freedom. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, communistic tyranny is what will uh, further the gospel in this country. God knows that. We can't know that. God knows that. He's in absolute sovereign control. Though he is not far from each one of us. He's nearby and he's knowable. But he's got ways to get even nearer and to become even more knowable to, to humble those that need to, uh, need to seek him. All right. Um, and then Romans 13, 1. If it, uh, any authority that's in authority is in authority because God put them there. If you resist authority, you are resisting uh, the purpose of God who put them there. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Our president is Barack Obama, and he, was a, and he is in office because God put him there. And if I am not in subjection, I am defying God himself. And there's the issue there. All right. So in that sense, then, it is true to say, by me, kings reign <laughs> and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. By me, Jesus Christ controls history. On a temporal basis, that is a true statement. But on an eternal basis, it is also a true statement. Because who are going to be the kings in the millennium? Who are going to be the kings and the princes and the judges? Who are going to be rewarded in the resurrection with the blessings of reigning with Christ? All right. And so eternally, the wisdom of God will bestow wealth and authority on resurrected rulers. And uh, we have Psalm 49, 14. We have Luke 19, verses 17 and 19, Revelation 5, 10, Revelation 20, and verse 4. This is where we ran out of time and just kind of very quickly had to race through some of these. But Psalm 49, 14. What a delight here in Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom. 
The meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle in the harp. This is uh, um, one of the uh, Psalms of the sons of Korah. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. And we find that here on earth in time, we can be, uh, we can be in conflict and victimized and, and uh, rich people might not like who we are in the word of God and whatever else is going on. That's all right. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. So as rich as he is, what's he really going to accomplish? No man can by any means can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. I mean, there's limits to what wealth can do in hostility against us or in in benefit for us. You know, don't, don't just get so earthly minded that you're all wrapped up in money you're all wrapped up in in earthly wealth and uh the the things it can do for you or the things it can't do for you or what it can do to you or can't do to you um that's just human perspective ultimately speaking we're redeemed by something much more precious than silver and gold and what god spent to give provide for us eternal life that's the real economy that we participate in talking about of course the economy of jesus christ for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. And so we realize that there is a future that we're looking forward to and we can't buy it. There's a future that we're looking forward to and God's going to put us into it. For he sees that even the even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish. They leave their wealth to others. <laughs> So a man in wisdom and a total fool defying the will of God, they're both going to die. And a man of great wealth and a man of no wealth, whatever, they're not taking it with them. They're all going to die. And they leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. You know, think of the ways that people have tried to prolong, (laughs) you know, their name, their legacy, their reputation. So, uh, you know, you can have a country named after you or a state or a, or a city or a, a road or a school or a whatever. And I guess the richer you are, the more things you can buy uh, to, to be named after you, right? All right. Wasn't that the, the joke in Music Man that everything was named after Miser Madison? You know, there's the Madison Public Library and the Madison Park and the Madison this, and everything was all named after old Miser Madison and, you know the nerve okay um but man in his pomp will not endure he is like the beasts that perish this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words as sheep they are appointed for sheol death shall be their shepherd but notice the upright shall rule over them in the morning see death is not the end we say good night, but we also say good morning for those that are in Christ. <laughs> we have a morning in, the, in terms of resurrection and in life and glory. Their form shall be for shale to consume so that they have no habitation. Ultimately, of course, d- death and Hades are given up and cast into the lake of fire. But God will redeem my soul from the power of shale, for he will receive me. 
What a contrast, okay? This is a beautiful psalm. I love this psalm. Well, um, the upright shall rule. Guess what? There is ruling in eternity. And who is selected for these kind of rewards? Those believers that are applying maximum doctrine. Those believers that are uh, applying wisdom in, uh, in time. All right, Luke 19, verses 17 and 19. Luke 19. Keep in mind, as we go to Luke, we're not in a church-age text. We are in uh, a message delivered to the nation of Israel. And we're dealing with some of the rewards that are going to be assigned to Israel. And I think uh, if you're ever going to study judgments and rewards, it's useful to consider what rewards are Gentiles entitled to in their resurrection. Gentiles like Noah or Job, for example. Uh, Job was looking forward to a future resurrection and to a future life with his Redeemer. What, what kind of rewards do victorious Gentiles receive? You know, do we have scripture that describes those? I don't think we really do because there was no uh, Gentile canon prior to the Hebrew canon to the Jewish people. But we do know that Israel will be resurrected to several rewards. And here is a passage that addresses much of this. All right, Luke 19. It's not a church text. It sometimes gets applied that way. Uh, Verse 11, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. All right? It's a bad assumption on that part because the kingdom of heaven is no longer at hand. They've already crossed the tipping point. And uh, it was at hand when John the Baptist first announced it, but after the rejection, he started uh, preparing them for the, for the kingdom. I mean, for the, for the crucifixion. Anyway, verse 12. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And this is a powerful parable because I think it represents very well Jesus Christ ascending to the Father, being seated in his right hand until the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. All right. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas or minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. And so we're expected to be busy while we're waiting for the king to return. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And of course, there's attitudes reflected there. We don't want this man. Crucify him. We want Barabbas. All right. Oh, we don't want this man. Away with him. And they sign, Israel will assign a treaty with Antichrist. We don't want this man. Anyway, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And in the application of the parable, of course, we are called to account. When we finish our earthly course, there is judgment and there the accounts are settled. And then we receive our reward. All right? Now, it's not a church passage, but because we understand the judgment seat of Christ text, we know what the parallels are and we we can relate. So the first appearance saying, Master, your manah has made ten manahs more and by the way this is a different passage than another parable where one is given one and one is given five and one is given ten where they're given different amounts here they're all given the same amount and there's a reason why you have both illustrations in the in the different parables anyway here they're both given everybody is given the same mana the same amount to start with and the first appeared saying master your mana has made ten manas more 
This is the guy with the maximum production. He's, he's outperformed any of the rest. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. Now keep in mind, this is a parable, but the principle that it's relating is just that. Authority to rule. All right? And that's what we had in Psalms, was authority to rule. We have the upright who, who rules in the resurrection in the morning after he wakes up from Sheol. Okay? So you were to be an authority over ten cities. Now often this gets applied in the church, and I think it gets misapplied in the church in different ways, because it's not a church reward. We reign with Christ. All right? And the idea that, well, you know, am I going to get ten cities? Am I going to get five cities? Am I going to get one city? Am I going to get a city block? Am I going to get in a neighborhood? You know, do I get a, am I going to get a phone booth somewhere? Okay? That'd be kind of nice. I don't have phone booths anymore, so now what am I going to do? Um, it's not a church-age text, and I think it misapplies it because we reign with Christ, and he reigns over everything. This seems to be delegated reigning over limited geographical territories. And so the second came, saying, Your manah master has made five manahs. And he said to him, also, you are to be over five cities. Now, it doesn't say why the guy made ten or the other guy made five. It doesn't say, and the parable's not that detailed. But the point is, some believers are more productive than other believers. What have you laid up in heaven? What do you have to show for what he provided you? And particularly since in this illustration, it's all equal from what we started with. Notice it's equality of opportunity, not equality of results. But we all have the same equality of opportunity in what we are provided as believers. We all have eternal life. We all have the word of God. We're all expected to live for the glory of our Savior. But what have we done with the equal start we all started with? You know, you'll notice he doesn't just get them all together and then gather up all the production and then divide it out equally among everybody. Say, well, I mean, yeah, you earned 10, but come on, you didn't really earn it. You didn't build that. And it's not fair that you should have ten, and this guy only has five, and that guy only has one. All right. (laughs) Oh, the world we live in. All right. And then the third guy, the loser. And what makes him a loser? He did nothing with what he could have done. Okay? Master, here is your manah, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. I didn't use it. I didn't do anything with it. Oh, I protected it, though. Yeah, I saved it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was doing. Yeah, that's a ticket. I was saving it for you. In fact, I stored it here in a handkerchief because I put it away in a handkerchief. I thought that would be safe. For I was afraid of you because you were an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. Well, yeah. He's the owner. He's the master. You're working for him. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you, did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow? Yeah, he didn't sow because he expected you to do it. You were working for him. Then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? I mean, at the very least, you could have done that. There's a, there's a minimal investment there. I expect they had higher interest back then than the near zero we've been dealing with lately. 
Anyway, then he said to the bystanders, take the mana away from him and give it to the one who has ten. This is like reverse communism. <laughs> you know, communism would have taken away from the guy who had ten. That's way too many. He didn't need all that. And let's spread it around among the, the, the share of the wealth among the folks that don't have as much. Here, take it away from the loser that did not produce and give it to the one who produced the most. He's getting a, uh, a surplus on his surplus. So now he has 11. And the guy that had one has zero. The guy that had five still has his five. So I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Now it's not a church passage, but, but we do have church age passages that we can connect to this in principle, draw our secondary application and bring it into our uh, considerations. For example, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, sowing and reaping. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. That is a church age text. It is comparable to what we're looking at here, related to what these things are. All right? In any event, ruling over cities, 10 cities or five cities or zero cities. The fact is, he doesn't lose his salvation and can't, you know, but he's not going to rule. He's not going to rule. The one city he might have thought he was going to rule, he's not going to rule because it's taken away from him. This other guy gets to rule 11 cities. All right. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. So yeah, don't go picking out cities that, you know, we don't get dibs on, you know, Lord, can I get Seattle? You end up like James and John trying to score choice seating assignments and at the at the banquet table or whatever. I want to sit on your right and on your left and get my mom in on it to try to influence the... We can't claim dibs, you know, on particular cities. And it's not even our text anyway, so... Um, anyway, I'll probably just end up with Pflugerville or something, right? <laughs> All right. Wrong, uh, not Romans, Revelation. Now notice another promise of reigning and reigning in a resurrection application. Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> It's a scene in heaven. They're singing a hymn. They have a new song to sing. They had a song they were singing in uh, the previous chapter about worthy are you. And it was a song they were singing to God the Father. Now they get to sing a new song, worthy are you. And now they get to add to the glory of the Father by uh, singing the glory of the Son and the Father. And uh, so here's the new song in verse 9. And uh, they're going to fall down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And uh, they sang a new song. In other words, there was a certain amount of worship and singing they could do before redemption was accomplished, and then a, a whole new song once uh, Tetelestai it is finished. All right. Now, based upon the finished work of the Jesus of Jesus Christ, based upon Him being exalted. Uh, now there's a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. All right, this is a church application. This is not Israel. This is every tribe and tongue and uh, people and nation. Okay, there's a worthwhile study for you for tribes and tongues and people and nations. And we are a kingdom. And we are priests. Remember, Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. I love that. <laughs> All right, Louis Bear Schaefer, give credit for that. And they will reign upon the earth. So there is reigning. We will reign. Of course, we're in Christ. We're going to reign with Christ. Future promised reigning. And then Revelation 20 in verse 4. Future promised reigning. I saw thrones and they sat upon them. Judgment was given to them. Well, who is judgment given to them? I thought all judgment was given to the Son. Why do we need plural thrones? Okay. You see why you got to compare Scripture to Scripture? You got to put things together? We're doing this right now with our teenagers in the book of Daniel, teen classes in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, thrones were set up, but it was only the Ancient of Days who took his seat. And so we're left to puzzle over, well, why do we need to set up multiple thrones if it's only the Ancient of Days taking his seat? You know, how many seats does God the Father need anyway? And why do we set up multiple thrones? Well, it's not answered in the book of Daniel because Daniel is clueless as to the mystery of the church, the bride of Christ. But then we learn in the Gospels that all judgment is given to the Son. So we, you still think, well, we just need one throne, right? But thrones were set up, and were, I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Judgment was given to them. Yes, all judgment's given to the Son, but the body of Christ is in the sun, right? We will judge this world. We will judge angels as per 1 Corinthians. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. So here we have tribulational martyrs. And quite clearly, they died for their faith in Christ as tribulational martyrs. They're not bride of Christ. They're, they're, uh, bride of Christ is sitting on the throne judging these guys. These are tribulational martyrs. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And it's sad when people look at that and say, oh, well, that's got to be the church then because we reign with Christ. Yeah, we reign with Christ, but forever, not just for a thousand years. Come on. What an insult. You know, would you rather reign with Christ eternally or would you rather have the temp job of one day? A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. And so the millennium, that's just a temp job. That's day labor right there. They come to life and they reign for the provisional government of the millennial occupying uh, government. Remember, the, the millennium is an occupying army that has conquered this world. And you have a provisional government that's established when you're an, uh, an occupying army. And that's what happens here. And it's tribulational martyrs that get to be resurrected and get to rule in the provisional government of the occupying army of Yahweh Tzavayoth, the Lord God of hosts. We reign with Christ forever. Anyway, so we have passages that speak of being resurrected and reigning. All right? Psalms, Gospels, uh, Luke 19, Revelation 5, Revelation 20. Most of those are Israel passages, uh, I think, in... Uh, Revelation 5, that's the church, all right? 
And so I believe it's uh, better to go through Proverbs 8, and when it says, by me kings reign, and view this as the rewards to believers, they will be the kings, they will be uh, princes, they will be judges, they will be nobles, all who judge rightly, that we're looking at the riches and honor, the enduring wealth, the endowment, the treasuries. We're looking at the eternal rewards given to uh, uh, believers in the resurrection. Different things there. All right. Well, that's the. That took 40 minutes. I thought it was going to take five minutes. That's the uh, the loose ends that we were dealing with in. Uh, down through verse 21. All right, so let's look at verse 22. In verse 22, we start, we have the most detailed passage in all the Bible. The most detailed passage in all the Bible concerning the begetting of the begotten. Okay? The begetting of the begotten. He gave His only begotten Son. Okay? And he is the begotten. And I realize that there's a whole lot of discussion related to begotten and only begotten. And there's a lot of discussion related to uh, better translations of monogenes, better, uh, better translations and understanding of uh, John 3.16 and, and the whole New Testament uh, literature as it pertains to the monogenes the one-of-a-kind, the unique Son of God, all right? And I also, I, I'm highly in favor. I agree. I, I, I accept that unique or one-of-a-kind is a better rendering than only begotten for monogenes in the New Testament. However, that is not to deny the begotten nature of his humanity. He is actually begotten. He is actually birthed. Okay? And it is a birthing of his human nature by God the Father that we are going to study in this chapter. We're going to study in Colossians 1. And we're going to study in other passages that speak of Jesus Christ as the firstborn from all creation. So I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's valid when you read the articles and, and you study the nature of monogenes that monogenes is uh, one of a kind, not only begotten. Okay? And it's much better to view that as one of a kind. But don't take it too far. And don't take it so far that you deny his begotten uh, reality. Okay? Talking about humanity here, of course, not deity. God the Son is unbegotten deity for all eternity. Same as the Holy Spirit, same as the Father. Right? We're not Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. We're not going into the... <laughs> we're, not, we're not positing God the Son as a lesser deity okay, that had a beginning. God the Son has no beginning. Even as God the Father has no beginning and God the Holy Spirit has no beginning. God is God from all eternity. And, and you understand that. But we're talking about the beginning of His humanity. And some of this is tough. Some of this, are, we're, we're dealing with concepts that boggle the mind on occasion, okay? That's why they, it's called inscrutable. Some theologians just wrestle with Trinity, and they wrestle with hypostatic union. And at some point, 
Um, it defies human understanding how one can also be three. Right? It, it, it defies human understanding how God can also be man. And how in hypostatic union He is true humanity, yet undiminished deity. United together in one person forever. That the uh, begetting of His humanity did not diminish His deity in any respect at all. That the word was and then the word became. Okay? And so I think it's, it's important that we have a grasp on this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing new. Uh, Christians have been teaching Trinity and teaching hypostatic union ever since the beginning. And some of the very first church fights came up in the early church councils over hypostatic union. It was it one nature, two natures in one person? One person with two natures? How do you answer that? How do you, how do you reconcile his humanity and his deity? Is his humanity as eternal as his deity? In other words, did his humanity have a beginning? Or was it also eternal, same as his deity? See, and that's, that's the question. You've got to discuss it. You've got to biblically prove it. Here's the answer. It's not eternal. Okay? It had a beginning, and we're learning it here in this verse. This is when it was begotten. This is when it was begat. Okay? When it was birthed. This is the, uh, the day that it took place. So let's work our way through and then we'll go back and we'll get some details on it. The Lord, Yahweh, possessed me. And I don't like the verb possessed. I mean, I love the verb, but I don't like the translation possessed. And we're going to give it a better translation. He obtained me. He birthed me. We'll discuss this. He acquired me at the beginning of his way before his work of old. So we have at and before. We have time expressions here. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. That's a childbearing term. This is, this is talking about the birthing of a child who is brought forth from the mother's womb. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. Great corollary here to the book of Job, (laughs) right? When God taunts Job to say, were you there? When I hung the earth in place, were you there? All right, wisdom was there. God the Son was there. In fact, God the Son was the one doing this. He was the one accomplishing the work. Uh, now, in some of these, in some of these aspects, it seems like the Father's doing all this work. Just relax. We'll explain. The Father is designing it, but it's the Son who's doing it. What did I leave off? Verse twenty-seven. When He established the heavens, I was there. When He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set for the sea its boundary, so that the water would not transgress His command. When he marked out the foundation of the earth. And so, if I stop in verse 29, it seems like Yahweh did a lot. And as he did all that, uh, Chachmah was with him, right? Wisdom was with Yahweh when Yahweh was doing all this stuff. Now, that shouldn't bother you unless you're really wrapped up in your hindsight and coming come with the Gospel of John and, and or Colossians or anything in the New Testament and saying, well, but, 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 Jesus made everything. 
okay? Jesus is the creator, not the Father. Jesus is the creator of everything. I know. We're getting there, okay? This passage agrees with that. So let me get past verse 29. Let's look at verse 30. Okay? Then, or at that time, while all of this was going on, I was beside him as a master workman. All right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. I was beside him as a master workman. The Father was the designer. I was the worker. So we have the architect and the carpenter, right? We have the designer of the plan and we have the executor of the plan. God said, let there be light. God the Father expressed His will and there was light. God the Son obeyed the Father. He did what the Father wanted to get done. You know, if you think about it, God the Son has to be the agent of creation because it's creation that reveals the Father. It's creation that is by what is seen that the invisible nature of what cannot be seen is known. Do you think uh, the first advent of Jesus Christ was the first time ever that Jesus Christ had revealed the Father? Of course not. Creation itself is Jesus Christ revealing the Father. All right. So I was beside him as a master workman. Daily, his delight. Who's the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased? The beloved son, he's always been well pleased. Since the creation and even before. Rejoicing always before him. Playing always before him. You know, is is it fun to watch your child play? Of course it's fun to watch your child play or your grandchild or babies. It's fun watching babies play, you know, and whatever. Watch a YouTube video and there's a kid playing with a dog and whatever. Okay, it's cute, right? The kid's cute. The dog's cute. It's cute. Playing. Why is it fun playing? Playing is always fun, okay? Because, uh, I mean, yeah, life was simpler before, you know, bills (laughs) adult responsibility um, taxes and mortgages and whatever else okay that little kid (laughs) he's just having fun and it's it's kind of neat that the language here is of a father and a child and he's playing always before him in the context if it's a if it's an infant if it's a child then it's it's playing or doesn't have to be rejoicing you know child doesn't have capacity to rejoice, but they can play. All right? Sometimes uh, this verb is sometimes even uh, um, kind of, it's, it's used between uh, a husband and a wife, okay? Isaac and, and Rebecca. And, and that's a different kind of playing. <laughs> but it's still called playing, all right? Husband and wife in marriage. Anyway, rejoicing in the world, his earth playing in the world his earth if we think about it in the whole created universe he's not playing with jupiter or saturn or you know pluto or other planets in other solar systems we don't even know about you know if it was me what would i be playing with i kind of like the rings around saturn are kind of cool or other things you know there's got to be other planets that would be fun to play with but why is it that the earth 
is the one he's most fond of because that's the one he made last. That's the one that he made after everything else was made and then he gathered the angels around and said, all right, now watch this. And he created the one planet in the universe for human habitation. The one planet in the universe where the glory of God was going to be manifest to angels and humans alike. Rejoicing in the world, his earth. And having my delight in the sons of man. Wow. A, uh, not the angels, not in the B'nai Elohim, not in the sons of God who were created first. The delight was in the sons of man. The sons of men, they didn't even come along until a third of the sons of God had rebelled. Why was his delight in the sons of men? Because he himself was already human. God the Son already. Keep in mind, the creator of the universe, it wasn't just God the Son that created all things. It was the God-man who created all things. You ever think about that? He was with God. All things came to being through him. Okay? Not one thing has come into being that has come into being apart from him. If it's created, he created it. And not just God the Son. In hypostatic union, the God-man created it. That's something to chew on and consider. All right. So here we have it. Now, clearly, what have we talked about already? We've talked about John 1 which is huge. We've talked about Colossians 1, the creator of all things, visible or invisible, where the rulers are authorities, right? And that's the passage that calls him the firstborn of all creation. That's significant. We need to understand that for the literal application of what that's saying. Not just for some poetry that, that assigns him preeminence, but firstborn literally. Literally firstborn. See, and this is what happens when you get to broaden your thinking, okay? <clears throat> and I, I'm, not, I'm not mocking others, or I'm not scorning, and I'm not, certainly not prideful, and I'm not, I didn't invent this. I'm not the first guy to come up with this, all right? This has been taught by many faithful men, but it's not frequently taught because it's not frequently thought about. Typically, <clears throat> God the Son has been deity since before the foundation of the earth, but humanity starts in a manger. That's how it's usually thought of. That deity is from eternity past, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but humanity doesn't start until a virgin gets pregnant. All right? And then a son is birthed. All right? That, that's the, that the incarnation is the inception of the hypostatic union. Right? And maybe that's what you think. Maybe that's what you've always thought. Maybe you've never heard this before and you think this lunatic is babbling. All right? <clears throat> that hypostatic union precedes Bethlehem and the manger and the, and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That his humanity precedes that. In fact, he came up at Dan's ordination, didn't it? And there were pastors that were questioning him on this that for the first time ever, thought, well, wait a minute. Humanity is not dependent upon a body. And he used that exact phrase. He said, 
that the humanity is, is, is a separate issue from, from incarnation, from a body. Okay? By the way, it's why in Hebrews it says, a body thou hast prepared for me. He already had his humanity. But a body thou hast prepared for me. So, um, think about the body you have now. Okay? Or don't think about it. If it's not pleasant. But think about it or don't think about it. But you're no less human when parts of that body are removed. Okay? Haircuts or nail clippings or amputations or whatever else. Or when you die and you get a new body. You're still human. Your humanity is not affected by the body you presently have. Okay? And you get a new body every seven years anyway through cell regeneration and whatever else. Um, is that right? Seven years? I made that up. No, I read it somewhere. I just don't remember the number. But you're constantly getting new blood cells, constantly getting new skin cells, constantly getting new... So, I mean, the body you have now is, is constantly being rebuilt when you eat and when you grow and you're sloughing off the dead cells and you're eliminating waste and, and so forth. So when your body goes into the grave and your soul and spirit go to heaven, you're still human. Your human spirit and human soul are going to heaven, carried by the angels. I believe you're going to be robed with a temporary body until such time as the resurrection of the, of the bride of Christ at the rapture. That interim body, you're still human even in the interim body. You're still human in the resurrection body. And so, uh, for Christ at least, for you and I, it's not an issue. We're procreated, we're in the womb, we're, we're birthed. We're birthed with a body and we're, and we're birthed with our soul. Uh, we're, we're birthed with a dead human spirit that needs to be made alive at salvation. But for Jesus Christ, who pre-existed his earthly walk, who pre-existed uh, his, his um, incarnation, is it possible that his human spirit was birthed prior to, prior to the manger, prior to the, the um, pregnant virgin? Yes. And I think this passage tells us that very thing. This is conclusively proven, along with Colossians 1 and, and uh, John 1. All right. So let's start. I think in... Um, oh, I've got three minutes. Let's understand, there's a phrase that is, is usually ignored. Today I have begotten you. Well, what day is that? Okay? Psalm 2 and verse 7. Today I have begotten you. <laughs> Today I have begotten you. Now, a human father can't tell his child that. I guess once he's born, you can say, uh, you know, today you are birthed. Today you are brought forth. You could say that. And, and, a, and a child that's just birthed uh, won't have capacity to comprehend the, the uh, words being spoken to them. <laughs> All right. Today I have birthed you. And since beginning encompasses both conception and birth, um, my illustration is going to break down a little bit. All right. But it doesn't matter. At the point of conception, the, 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 the person can't hear what's being spoken by the father. And at the point of birth, the, the, the newborn has ears to hear, but doesn't understand the language, couldn't comprehend. This is the day of your birth. Okay. 
It's uh, revealed in Psalm 2. It's cited in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 3.17 and the parallels of Mark 1.11, Luke 3.22. There are quotations in Acts and in Hebrews. But never do any of those passages explain what do you mean by today? <laughs> what day is today? Is it day after day as long as it's still called today? Is that our Sabbath rest? No. Okay. Today is today in our application for when we should be Sabbath resting. That's today. It's not Saturday or any other day. It's today. Today is our Sabbath day. But today I have begotten thee. Well, what day is that? And so we have to ask ourselves, does Scripture ever define what that day is? Or do we just assume it was Christmas morning in Bethlehem? (laughs) Do we just assume that? No. Proverbs 8 tells us it was before the foundation of the world. Proverbs 8 tells us it was before his works of old. That this is when he was begotten. This is when he was kana, acquired. That this is when he was uh, established, in verse 23, fixed or made firm. This is when he was birthed or brought forth, in verse 24, delivered, in, in the sense of, of child delivery. Okay. And likewise, in verse 25, same verb in verse 25, I was brought forth, I was delivered, I was birthed. That'd be another term for that, but that's, I'm, I'm scraping. All right. But that's, this is what happens. Okay? You know, and, and um, this is the text that locks it in, along with, like I say, John 1, with the in the beginning Logos passage, and most critically, Colossians 1. I'm going to close with that, and then we'll come back to this. I also want to look at Psalm 89, but that'll be on Wednesday. But understand, he is the firstborn of all creation. And if you accept this being the alpha moment of all eternity, the boundary, this is the boundary between eternity past and time, then you can go to Colossians 1.17 and go, aha, he is the firstborn of all, uh, verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's not just a figure of speech. That's not just poetry. We don't just take that as as hyperbole or as exaggeration or as metaphor. We take that literally. There was never a birth in the universe until the humanity of Jesus Christ was birthed by God the Father. And then something temporal came to be. Something finite began. All right, we'll chew on that. We'll come back next week and we'll deal with it some more. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your faithfulness, for your truth. Thy word is truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.